Yeah, it's hard to believe Christmas season starts next week at New Spring. We start our brand new series called Surprise. I was thinking on the way to campus for the four o'clock service yesterday, I think I preached 32 Christmas series here at New Spring. And, uh, but this is by far and away the best I've ever had the privilege of bringing. And so we all start it next week. It's a series called Surprise. And what's great about the Christmas story, it's like some extraordinary divine challenges to the status quo. So we're going to be talking about those starting this next weekend. But today, we're ending a two-week mini-series on generosity. And one thing that I'd like to just open with today is whenever we talk about money, there's a certain tension that enters the room. Whether it's just at home and you're discussing the family budget or in between the services, I just kind of like pull down some news nationally. And I guess in Washington, they're talking about the tax code and that makes us all feel a little tense until we know if anything's gonna happen or how it's gonna shake out. Or even if we're in church, it's just something about talking about money that makes us just get this little tense feeling in our stomach. And I think maybe the reason for that is we have a little bit of a cognitive dissonance that takes place when it comes to money. So today what I wanna do is I just wanna back away from the emotional side and give you six facts about money. When I was a kid growing up, there was this old cop show and the tagline of the show or the most memorable line of the show is just the facts. And so today I wanna just, let's just get rid of the emotion. Let's not even be emotional about today. Let's just talk about some money facts Um, and look at it from a purely objective standpoint, at least biblically speaking. The first fact I want to give you is that money's a big deal. A moment ago, I said that there's a cognitive dissonance about money. You know, there's something about talking about money where people want to pretend that money's not very important. In fact, we actually have a saying that we mock in that regard, and that's when someone says, it's not about the money. What do we know when someone says it's not about the money? It's about the money. Yeah, so we laugh about that. But the thing about it is, you know, we all feel pressured to say, well, money's not that important. Money's not the big deal. And yet, on the other hand, money is a big deal. And so I think we ought to just take a moment, take a deep breath, and embrace the reality that money is a big deal. If you're holding a Bible in your lap or if you've got an electronic device and you're looking up scriptures, here's what you need to know about the Bible. They're about 31,000 verses. Out of the 31,000 verses, 2,000 verses are about money and possessions. That's kind of interesting when you think about that. That means one out of every 15 verses in the Bible is about money or possessions. That's God talking to us. So for God to like devote one-fifteenth of the Bible to money, hey, must be a pretty big thing. You know, if I was a real Bible preacher, I'd preach every 15 sermons, I'd preach one sermon about money. So I'm coming up short. I think I've only brought two in the last 105 weeks. So... Um, but it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Now, why is money a big deal? Because if you think about it purely in terms of currency or a debit card, you know, the plastic, or if you think about it like a line item on your, on your financial statement, you know, it, it just seems sort of innocuous. It seems sort of dry. What is it that we mean when we say we love money, which really, when it gets right down to it, all of us probably do at some level? Well, a couple of facts are important. This is why money is a big deal. The first thing is money is power. When we say we like money, it's not that we necessarily like the currency or just like the number. We like the fact that money gives us power. Money determines what you can do with your time, what you can buy, what you can do with your leisure time, where you can go. Money is power. And so whenever you talk about money, 
It's about power, power to be leisure, to have a leisure time, power to get what you want. Money is power. The second reason why money is a big deal is kind of related to the first one. That is, anytime you get ready to spend money, there is a test that takes place, and it goes something like this. Now, in our family today, we don't like go shopping like we used to go in the old days. My wife has discovered Amazon. So consequently, I've discovered there are three levels of Amazon. There's Amazon, there's Amazon Prime, and then Mary Alice is up for Amazon sainthood. And, and <laughs> so neither one of us likes to shop. They, they pick up trash on Wednesday mornings in Andover, and I have the sea of boxes behind my dumpster. I swear every week. The people who collect the trash are going to think we've started a business or something. But we haven't. We're just shopping. But here's the thing about shopping, whether you shop at a brick-and-mortar store or you shop online, there is a test that takes place every time you, you do. And it goes something like this. When you hold the money, you have power. But then you find something you want, and that begins to compete for the power. And you have to look at the object you think you want. And if you decide to buy, you reach a tipping point where you are ready to give away a certain amount of your power in order to get the possession. If, on the other hand, you look at the possession and you weigh the power and you say, no, I need the power so that I can pay my mortgage this month, and you decide not to buy, then, then that's what happens. Now, here's the problem with debt or credit. Credit allows us to pretend that test doesn't exist. Or at least it allows us to postpone that test. And how many of us have paid off high credit card balances and say, yeah, it really does matter. So all I want to say today is let's not worry about pretending anymore. Let's not worry about freaking out and saying, oh, it's not about the money and pretending that money isn't all that important. Money's big. Money's a big thing. One out of every 15 verses in the Bible is about money. Money is power. And every time you buy something, there is a test to decide whether you'd rather hold on to the power of the money or to gain the object. Let's go to the second fact about money, and this is a big one. It all belongs to God. In the Bible, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 26, the Bible says the earth is the Lord. So hey, not surprised at that. The planet belongs to him. But look at the next line, and everything in it. That means every dollar, every, every dollar in, a, in an account, every share of stock, every square foot of land, everything belongs to God. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, it says, After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. Hey, I know it may come as a surprise to you, but you were not born holding Mercedes keys. We brought nothing into this world. And you know what? When you and I leave, we're not taking anything out. I've done over 1,000 funerals, had two this week, and my car's been situated right behind a lot of hearses, and I can tell you firsthand, there are no hearses pulling U-Hauls. When you and I leave, we're going to leave everything here because everything belongs to God. Yesterday, my son Stephen gave me something, an article that I found really interesting. And in this article, it said that 80, the richest 80 people in the world control more wealth than the bottom poorest half of the world's population. 80 people have more wealth than 3.5 billion people. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to go anywhere with that. I, I'm not suggesting income redistribution. I don't really believe in that. Someone said the failure with socialism, it works fine until you get, get rid of everybody else's money. So I'm just, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that that's interesting because, you know, the people that have all that money must feel that they have this enormous sense of power. And yet... Here's the one thing I do know. I have been in the morgue a number of times, and we all look the same under the sheet. 
whether you're a billionaire or a street person, everybody looks pretty similar at the morgue. The reason for that is we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we are taking nothing out when we leave. So consequently, that on its prima facie basis lets us know that everything, as the Bible says, belongs to God. You know, as I said a few moments ago, sometimes when we talk about things like here at New Spring, and this is for New Springers, we were talking last week about we're building the new nursery. You know, it's going to be about $3 million. We're about a million dollars away from paying cash for that, and I've challenged this as a church. Let's rise up and let's build this nursery for the babies and, and have an open, generous heart. Um, and you know, we, we learned last week, wasn't that a powerful verse when we, when we learned the reality that generous people plan to be generous and they stand firm in that generosity? You know, um, forgive me for taking a side trail for a moment, but this is a pretty important one. A lot of us have the idea that generosity is a sort of spontaneous thing that arises up. That's kind of a form of generosity, but not really. I mean, I was checking out at a store this week, and the cashier asked me, would you like to make a donation? And, and she named a, a great charity, and I, I love what this charity does. And so I said, yeah, I'd, I'd like to, and I made a nice donation, added to my, to my bill. I mean, we've got Christmas coming up. I live in Andover. I shop at the Andover Dillons. They have the Salvation Army out there. As I get ready for the season, I just keep, a, I just keep some cash in, my, in the little caddy in my car so that every time I, I try to make sure I never walk past a kettle without dropping something in it. But that's not real generosity. That's sort of spontaneous. The mood strikes me. It's the right season of the year. That's not what generosity is. See, here's the thing. It's not real generosity until we look at what we actually have and we look at the difference that we're making and we say to ourselves, it's substantive. And so the thing about it is the Bible says we didn't bring anything into this world and we're not going to take anything out. So all the time we're here, we're actually using money and resources that belong to God. As I said, I don't talk about money a whole lot, probably let you down in that regard because being generous with God is your opportunity to be blessed. But I do always feel just a little tension when I do that. And you know, it's such a mistake for us to feel that way. I've been preaching a long time here. It's my 33rd year, and I'm sure I've probably told this story before. But one of my personal favorite stories is about a woman who went into one of these bookstores like Barnes & Noble. And you know how I just, I love that too. I mean, I'm, I'm old school. I have a lot of books on Kindle, but I like to fill the book, you know, and read the book, turn the pages. And especially like to go to like Barnes and Noble and sit in the coffee shop and read. And that's kind of what was going down with this woman. She went to, to the store. She got her book. She went back to the coffee shop and ordered coffee. And just as she was getting to the end of the line, she noticed that there was like a, some little bags of cookies. So she got one of the bags of cookies and she started looking for a place to sit. But unfortunately, Every table had someone at it. Every booth had someone. So she looked around. There's a real nice, kind of friendly-looking guy sitting by himself reading a book at a table. She said to him, sir, is it okay if I sit across from you? And he smiled at her and said, absolutely. Please, please have a seat. Please feel free. So she opened her book, started reading, started sipping on her coffee. And in a few minutes, she reached out to get a cookie. But the weirdest thing happened. Before she could grab a cookie, the guy across from her reached out and got one of the cookies. And they... <laughs> That ain't right. <laughs> Who does he think he is? She just kind of frowned at him. He smiled at her. 
A few minutes later, I mean, these little bags of cookies are not very big. You know that. All you guys know that for sure, right? So she's like reaching out to get another cookie, and the same thing happens. This guy's quick drama grom, and he reaches out and gets one of the cookies. She gives him a look that would freeze water. He smiles at her. And then there's only one cookie left. By George, she's going to get that one. Reaches and, and unimaginably, before she can get the cookie, the guy gets the cookie. And she just has this hostile look at him. So he breaks it in half and gives her half. Oh, that's all she could take. She slammed her book shut, walked up to pay for her coffee, opened her purse, and the moment she did, there was her bag of cookies unopened. She'd been eating that man's cookies the whole time. Well, baby, you've been eating God's cookies. So don't get tense and act like God's making a claim. Everything you've got belongs to him. You didn't bring anything in when you came, and you ain't taking nothing with you when you leave. It all belongs to him. One of the greatest things I'll ever teach you about money is the third thing, and here's a huge fact. God's idea is for us to be stewards in this life and owners in the next. Now, think about the juxtaposition of this point in contradistinction or even in distinction to the last one we just looked at. If you don't really own anything in this world, but you're going to go to a place where you will own things, then it does make sense that in this world, it's God's opportunity for you and I to be managers, managers of his resources, so that we can be owners in the next. Yesterday, I had a funeral for a young New Spring mom, and um, sad day. But I remember, in, in out in the cold drizzle, I opened my Bible to Revelation 21, and I read about heaven, and I said, in heaven there will be no more sorrow, tears, or pain, or crying. And I happened to read that line where God says, behold, I make everything new. Have you ever thought about in this world how stuff ages? I mean, you know, at New Spring, I know our median age is pretty young, so there are a lot of you that are like, you know, you're 20 years old. The rest of us, some of the rest of us could tell you that time and gravity are going to do a number on that body of yours that you think is going to last forever. And as we, we, as we age, it's like God's way of saying to us, you're only here for, you're, you're temporary, you know. I mean, my, my shingles are getting thin on the roof. That is God's way of saying, hey, Mark, you're not staying here. This world is meant to be temporary. And, and the thing about it is, stuff gets old, we get old. But in heaven, the Bible says, God is saying, I make everything new. And it isn't just new, perpetually new. We don't get old in heaven, and the stuff that God gives us doesn't get old in heaven. I'm going to offend somebody here, and I don't want to do it. But i got to tell you, I don't like antiques at all. My wife does. She loves antiques, you know. Not me. It looks like old junk to me. I don't care who uses it. I don't care if George Washington wrote, you know, wrote his inaugural speech on it. Done many things to me. It's just an old desk. I go to antique stores, and I think I've thrown better stuff in this away. I like new things. And God says he makes all things new. Now, here's the thing about money is in this life, we are meant to be managers. In the life to come, God means for us to be owners. Let me read this to you. This is Jesus talking. This is so cool. 
He said, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, that's money, who will trust you with the true riches? Hold that expression for about two or three minutes because I'm going to come back to it. True riches. Okay, let's read on. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Mount Rushmore statement from the Bible. You cannot serve God in money. Isn't it strange how that God or Jesus there distills all of the gods of this world down to just money? Isn't it interesting that he doesn't say you can't serve God and money, sports, sex, entertainment, leisure, all the other gods of the world. Why did he just say just God and money? Because money can buy all the rest. According to Jesus, there are only two gods that people like you and me serve. There's money and there's God. Here's what troubles me in a talk like today. And I'm not just troubled for you and all of you watching online. I'm troubled for me. Because I live in the Western world. I live in the United States of America. I'm part of the postmodern American generation, the wealthiest people that ever lived. And especially as it relates to Christians. I fear that we can come in and sing and worship God as though he is our God, and then walk out, and for the next six days, the truth of the matter is, money is really our God. If you want to know who's your God, look at your bank statement, and you'll know who your God is. Jesus is saying, you can't serve God and money. Now, here's, here's a beautiful thought. Jesus is saying, look, when you start out, you're going to get a little bit of what this world has to give in regard to riches. And Jesus is saying, if you are faithful with a little bit, God is saying, he will make sure that you get more to manage. But then he makes this extraordinary statement. And he said, if you are faithful with the money, then God will give you the true riches. And that's really interesting. I almost wish I could do this whole talk on those two words, true riches, because true means real. You know, money is an illusion. You know, I said a few moments ago that there are people, the 80 richest people in the world have more money than the poorest, three and a half billion. Well, the thing about it is those people that have all those billions of dollars, they think they are rich and powerful. I was reading about one CEO on the West Coast who's CEO of a tech company. He's got $50 billion. He's got 15 houses around the world. Who needs 15 houses? It's everything I can do to keep up one house in Andover. But 15 houses. He's got two yachts. Both of them are the, half the length of football fields. He likes to play basketball on his yacht, so he has a powerboat behind him when the ball goes over the side and picks up the ball. I wonder why do you need to pick up the balls if you have that, many, that much money? <laughs> Boy, there's some weird stuff in this world, isn't there? You know what? He's going to die and leave it all someday. He can feel that he's rich, but it's, a loose, it's an illusion. Man, you're not going to have any idea what I'm talking about unless you're over 50. Long, long ago in a galaxy distant far away, <laughs> we had something called board games. These were games that didn't even have to have batteries. They came in cardboard boxes, you opened them up, you threw dice, and you played around the table. 
Uh, the most well-known of these was a game called Monopoly. Some of you have played electronic Monopoly. But, but the thing about Monopoly was this idea was to get as much property as you could get, then put houses and hotels on it. And then you're like trying to bankrupt all your friends. It's very much like America today. <laughs> So for all of you who are really, really old and remember this, because the thing of it is, at the beginning of the game, you got some little paper cash, Monopoly money. And the whole thing was, like, say you want to bankrupt your friends. So as some of you know what it's like. You own Park Place. You own Boardwalk. You put hotels on that. So, I mean, you know, people rolling dice coming across your property. They're, like, bankrupting. And so one by one, they get up and say, I'm going to bed. I'm out. I'm out. And so and finally, it's just you and one person. You know, you're, you're, and, and there comes that moment, man, you know, He's rolling the, the dice and throws the dice and lands on boardwalk. Boom, he's tapped out, nothing. And you're sitting there by yourself. Do you realize they all leave you to put up the game? And all that money you're so excited about getting, you know what you're going to do? You're going to put it all back in the box. And baby, let me just tell you this. When you die, I, you can, I, God bless you. I hope you become very wealthy, but it's all going back into the box. See, money's an illusion. That's why Jesus said if God can trust you with the monopoly money, he can trust you with the true riches. This is going to be the simplest definition that you've ever heard. Do you, do you know what true riches are? Work with me. <laughs> How many of you have problems that money would solve? I do, Right? There's, there's problems that money will solve. How many of you have a problem that no matter how much money you have, money wouldn't solve? That's true riches. And God is saying, look, if you'll be faithful with the monopoly money, God is saying, I will trust you with the stuff that money can't buy. There are so many things I could think about right now, but may I have just a few moments to tell you about a woman whose existence has made such a difference in my life. My paternal grandmother, my dad's mother, grew up in about as awful a dysfunctional home as you can imagine. Her father, my great-grandfather, I never knew him, was a wicked, wicked man. And he abandoned the family when my grandmother was a little girl. My great-grandmother became embittered and it was like her life shut down at that moment. I think she died when I was about six. Have you ever known someone who was so bitter that you could feel it in the house? And kids are sensitive. Do you know I have no idea what my great-grandmother's house looks like on the inside? All I can remember is her flower bed because that woman was so bitter, so toxic, you just didn't want to go to the house. There was no faith. There was no church in that family. How my grandmother fell in love with Jesus, I have no idea. Basically, she was left to rear her two younger siblings. Well, people got married earlier in those days, and I wouldn't be surprised if my grandmother wasn't just trying to, trying to get out of the house. When she was, I think, 16, maybe even 15, she married my grandfather. You know, my grandfather was sure not a Christian. He came from a family of hard drinkers and gamblers. So I just want you to understand, your pastor didn't come from a long line of religious people. I came from hellraisers. That's sort of what I came from. And my grandfather was not a believer till the middle of his life, and he abused alcohol, and he had real, real anger issues. My grandmother, in that climate, began to raise her nine kids, of whom my dad is the oldest, and raise them in the Depression. 
And she loved God and she loved church. But I tell you, I never saw anybody in my life who loved people who serve in ministry like my grandmother. She died when I was 24. But I was preaching in those days around South Texas. If I was preaching within 50 miles, even when her cancer was so bad, she had a hard time setting up. She would demand somebody in the family drive her to hear the next Billy Graham. At least in her mind, that's who I was. And when she would leave to go to church, when those young kids, after getting them ready in the depression, my grandfather would cuss her as she got ready to go to church. He would cuss her as she walked out the door. He, when she came home, would cuss her for wasting her time. If she wanted to invite the preacher, he'd cuss him. I always wondered what would have happened. My, my cousin Anita, who is a writer and a Christian entertainer, writes about my grandmother a lot. She writes with much more eloquence than I can. But I'll, Anita and I get together and say, what would have happened if Grandma had just checked out? What if she'd said, that's enough? I mean, I didn't, I didn't have any help where I came from. I'm married to a bitter, angry, hostile drunkard. And I'm trying to serve God and raise my kids to follow God. And I get cussed all the time. You know what? I'm quitting. And I don't even want to know where I would be today. But she kept on. And she kept on week in and week out. As I said, my grandmother died when I was 24. I was just a few months older than Stephen. And even though she had three sons who were pastors, it was my grandmother's wish that I preach her funeral. I'll never forget that day as I stood to preach her funeral. The choir loft of the church behind me was filled with pastors from all over the state. I've seen that for another pastor. I've never seen it for a layperson before. But nobody loved, nobody loved church leaders like my grandmother did. Well, I think you know, even here at New Spring, that you know a number of her of her kids and grandkids are in ministry. I'm, I'm here, and you know Jonathan and Stephen, and, and you even know some others of her family here. I was in Texas. It was very awesome, my 40th anniversary. And so we actually spent about a week down the hill country, down the Marble Falls, Burnett area of Texas, where all my family's from. There's a, a church, a smaller, much smaller church, but a little similar to New Spring in Burnett. And so we were there on a Sunday, and, and I'm sitting there with Mary Alice, and my cousin Dixie is on the other side of me, and she is director of women's ministries there, and my cousin Shelly is children's pastor there. And I got to thinking about my cousin Dennis, who was down the highway serving in his 38th year of worship pastor of the church where he was. And I started thinking, I wonder how many of my grandmother's descendants are in church ministry. I counted 31. Well, she has one kids pastor, one director of women's ministry, one small groups pastor, one Christian author, speaker, and entertainer, two Christian college music professors, eight who are in worship ministry, 10 pastor's wives, and nine pastors. Now, if that adds up to a little more than 31, there are a couple of them that wear more than one hat. How about that? Here's a woman who, from a totally dysfunctional home, but to her, true riches was the work of God. 
And you know what? Since the last Sunday of August 1951, one of her sons, grandsons, or great-grandsons has stood before a crowd of people somewhere in the United States and opened up a Bible and taught people about Jesus Christ. That, to me, is remarkable. In fact, when I was in Texas, I, I actually pulled up one of my second cousins, who would be her great-grandson. I've never even met him, but he's a youth pastor, a student pastor in Tennessee, and he was speaking for his whole church, and I watched his sermon online. It was a great Bible message, and I thought, Grandma, if this thing works like Amway, you're still racking up points. Here's what, just make sure we didn't lose that point in that story. Jesus is saying, if you're faithful with little, you'll be given much to manage. And if you're faithful with that, then God will turn over the true riches to you that money can't buy. Let me give you the fourth fact very quickly. It's not so much about what God wants from you. It is what God wants to do for you and through you. You know, the Bible says in heaven, the streets are paved with gold. So God clearly is not trying to get his hands on our stack. Let me read to you what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give, and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives generously. Now look at this next one. And God will generously provide all you need, then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over for you to share. See, whatever this guy, and again, I have no idea who this guy is, and with the $50 billion, that's his business. But he doesn't seem to understand that God does not bless us in order for us to hoard and consume it on ourselves. God's ultimate goal is for us to become more generous. He blesses us, gives us what we need, gives us the ability to have more so that we can do more to help others in need. We are blessed in order to be generous. Let me give you something to chew on for a few moments. I want to give you two statements, and I'd, ask, I'd like to ask you to personalize these. If I'm generous, it will make a difference. Okay? That's fair? Let's take this statement. If I'm not generous, it will make a difference. God blesses us in order to be generous to others. Okay, here's the next to the last fact. Fact number five, I love this one. You don't have to be rich to be generous. You have to be generous to be generous. I've met so many people through the years that say, well, like, if I could just win the lottery, I would do all this wonderful stuff for people. If I could win the Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes, I would just do so much for everybody. You know. You don't have to be rich to be generous. You have to be generous to be generous. You know, I... I thought long and hard about telling you this story because there's a part of it I don't think I've ever told at New Spring. And so I thought about it before the four o'clock service yesterday. When Mary Alice and I came here in 1985, we took a serious, huge cut in income to come here. But we were both just convinced that this was God's will. So we came. But it was tough. And on top of that, one of the things is, as I've led this church and led the staff, it's always been very important to me that our, our staff have the very best health care plan because when I came here, it was just horrible. And um, Jonathan had some health issues when he was six, and so we racked up a whole lot of debt. And so we didn't have two nickels to rub together. For those of you who've been there, though, and God sort of brings you out a little bit, isn't it interesting how many good memories you have of when times are tough? 
I was kind of talking to Jonathan and Jared about growing up and kind of apologizing for how bad things were at the time. And, and, and they sort of both had a very pleasant memory that kind of surprised me. One night, we all wanted to go to Joyland. That's a prehistoric amusement park. For... <laughs> we all wanted to go to Joyland, and I didn't have the money. And so the boys just said, hey, we're, we're going to look for money around the house. They went through all the couches and everything. And sure enough, I'll never forget the moment when they said, we've got enough. And I'll never forget going to Joyland that night and just like putting out all the pennies and everything like that. But to them, that's one of their favorite memories. But it was during that time when, like, honestly, we just didn't have two nickels to rub together. Our, our campus was located on South Hillside. And we lived in a parsonage. And there was a mission apartment that was the back, at the back of our parsonage. So when I was coming out my back door, I was right by the door of the mission apartment. So one day I came out my back door, and uh, there was a couple that were missionaries to Australia. We loved them. They were dear to us. Their kids were our, our kids' age, and they were just very special people to us. And so when I came out, the husband and wife were talking about getting her a haircut, and um, the discussion I heard was she was saying, well, I've heard there may be a haircutting school here, and a lot of times they'll cut hair for like $5. I thought, that, that, that's not right. I mean, these are people that have left behind their, their careers and lives to go to, to Australia to tell people about Jesus. And so I reached into my wallet and took out my last $20. I had a $20 bill. I took out my last $20. And I said, I don't know how, what a woman's haircut costs. This is in 1987. I don't know how much a woman's haircut costs, but I, I just hate for you to do that. And I told them where Morales got her haircut. I said, I don't know what it costs, but I said, here's $20. Listen, when you're dead broke and you're generous... How many of you know that like Satan sort of sits on your shoulder and says, that was stupid? <laughs> well, when you have an addiction, you do what you have to do. And I was addicted to Diet Coke in those days. So I found the change to go down to the quick trip. Now, in those days, this is really old, old Wichita stuff. In those days, there was a quick trip at the corner of Harry and, and Hillside, little one. And so I drove down there and I, I had my 50 cents because, you know, with 50 cents, you, quick trip, you could buy one of those big, deep and wide drinks and so I bought it, and I came back out of the car, and it was kind of interesting because Quick Trip was sort of empty. There was just like a few people around. And just as I was, just like I was telling you the story last week, I was walking in my car, and I looked down, and there were some bills, and I think it was like $36 folded up. So I just started walking around and asking people if it was their money. That's the miracle right there. <laughs> Is this your money? So, I mean, and then there was one guy in a car, and I said, this is, I said, this is before we had, everybody had electric. What is I, I said, roll your window down. And so I, I held up the money, and I said, is this yours? No. I go into Quick Trip. I asked the guy behind the counter, has anybody lost money here? I found money. And he said, no, nobody's lost money. I'm walking out, by this time it's empty. And, like, and I don't want you to think that God like said this out loud to me, but he sort of did. It was like God said, you are really dense. <laughs> God was saying, you know, an hour or so ago when you, when you did what you did, I, I watched what you did, and you can't outgive me. You don't have to be rich to be generous. You have to be generous to be generous. In fact, the truth be told, it does seem in America that the more money we get, the less inclined we are to be generous. I mean, people who make under $20,000 a year tie that levels eight times as high, eight times as high as people who make over 75000 Strange. The more money we get, the more sense of power we have. It's mine. 
the name Peter Marshall probably doesn't mean anything to anyone anymore, but he is, to me, outside of Billy Graham, perhaps the greatest American preacher. He pastored what was called the Church of the Presidents. He pastored New York Avenue Presbyterian in Washington, D.C. I don't think they ever were able to build a building big enough to hold all the people who wanted to hear Peter Marshall preach. He was chaplain of the Senate. Senators and presidents came to hear him preach. And he had a church very similar to New Spring back in the 40s and 50s. Died at 49. Died a young man. But I go back, and even now, I love to listen. Oh, my goodness. If you ever get a chance to hear the message he preached at Annapolis the morning of Pearl Harbor, not knowing what was about to happen, that was a prescient message from God. But anyway, that's another story for another day. Anyway, there was a guy in Peter Marshall's church who came to him. In those days, he was making $50,000 a year, which was a lot of money in 1945, 46, whenever that was. And he said to Peter Marshall, I'm having a problem. He said, you know, when I made $100 a week, I found it easy to tithe, but now I'm making $50,000 a year. That's a lot of money. And he said, I'm having a hard time tithing. And Peter Marshall said, would you like for me to pray for you? Well, who's going to tell Peter Marshall they can't pray, he can't pray? The guy said, well, okay. So Peter Marshall began to pray. He said, dear God, my friend here had no problem tithing when he made $100 a week, and now he makes $50,000 a year. Oh, God, would you help this man and reduce his income back to $100 a week? And he, at that point, interrupted and said, oh, Dr. Marshall, please, that, that's good enough. I, I don't think I'll have any problem. Hey, you want me to strip off the veneer and tell us why we are less generous when we get more money? I'll tell you. We like being God. I mean, I'm talking about church people who grew up in church and have been very, very blessed. We like being God, and we're just not really sure we want to give God that much power in our lives. That's what it is. You don't have to be rich to be generous. You have to be generous to be generous. Here's the final one, and this is my personal favorite. God's not a charity case looking for donors. He's an entrepreneur looking for partners. Lord knows if we should understand anything in Wichita, we should understand entrepreneurship. When I came to this city in 1985 from Metroplex, I, I, I sized it up pretty quickly, and I got to thinking to myself, there's no... There are no mountains, there's no beach, there's no theme parks. There's nothing here to do but business. And so we have been blessed to see entrepreneurship at an extraordinary level here in, in Wichita. Clyde Cessna, Walter Beach, Carney Brothers. I mean, that's just for starters. I mean, we have a phenomenal entrepreneurship, pro entrepreneurship program at Wichita State. World class. Man, we know about entrepreneurship here. You know... The thing about entrepreneurship is, is, is entre and, and, and by the way, forgive me for breaking a sense. I had a privilege of having lunch Friday with a couple of new springers, and he was CEO of a company, but when the economy tanked in 2008, it was like his company just, I mean, they just sort of lost everything. And he and, he and his wife started a new company. It's one of those against all odds companies, and they stayed with it and believed in it, and now the trajectory is starting to take off. It was so much fun to just sit at the table and listen to them because entrepreneurs understand that you release what you have in your hand today in order to get great benefits in the future. You know, 
being a Wichita, I love the story of Pizza Hut and the Carney brothers and how they started the first little shop over in Wichita State. And there are stories that make the rounds in a city, and you don't know if they're true or not. You don't know if they're apocryphal or not. But I remember hearing a story about the Carney brothers when they first started Pizza Hut. And according to the legend, it goes something like this. They got to the place where they needed a large commercial pizza oven, and it was $2,500, and they didn't have the money, you know. So according to this legend, they approached the, they approached the owner of the commercial appliance store, and they said, hey, we are willing to give you a percentage. If I remember right, it's a fairly robust percentage of their new company. They said, we are willing to give you a percentage of our company if you will give us this commercial pizza oven. And he said, nothing doing. I want cash on the barrel head. In Texas, we used to say, that is stupid. (laughs) See, God's not a charity case looking for donors. He's an entrepreneur, and he's looking for women and men to go into business with him. See, God has business in this world, whether it's New Spring Church and what's going on here with kids' ministry, or if it's some mission program, or if you're a part of another faith fellowship, if it's your church, God is in business in this world changing lives. And if you're willing to go into business with him, he will make you a partner. And it's better than getting in on the ground floor of Starbucks in Seattle, or better than getting on the ground floor of Microsoft if you happen to know Bill Gates in college. It's better stuff. It's going in business with the God of all creation who doesn't just manage earthly wealth, but he manages the true riches. And if you're willing to go into business with him, you'll go into a partnership where you'll never lose. And the benefits are eternal. And that, ladies and gentlemen, are the facts. Thank you for listening. God bless.